one, two, five, nine. Robin Breeze, servant leader, rector, reverend, deacon, elder, what the hell? So, Ethan, I sent you this article from the Lewis Center that covers all of the disaffiliations now that the disaffiliation window is closed because it opened in 2019. It closed at the end of 2023. They had four years to do it. Mm-hmm. And I just want to talk about the findings from this article from the Lewis Center and whether they surprise us, whether they fit our worldview. I think I am realizing something about the value of an institution as we read through this. But yeah, I'm just going to stay a statistic and we'll think through it. Sure. So there were 7,631 churches that disaffiliated in this window. And like that, when you say that number... I, that doesn't really phase me. It's 25% of United Methodist churches and 24% of like the denomination's membership in the United States. Mm-hmm. So it, like a quarter of United Methodists in the United States decided to disaffiliate. That doesn't mean they all joined the GMC, but they decided to leave. It was mostly in the Southeastern jurisdiction represent that's where i'm from um and the south central jurisdiction where like the whole texas conference north texas conference left and i don't know like as that first number i think as we've talked about this in the past i feel like i have heard arguments for like 10 percent to 15 percent of churches are leaving it's not a huge number 25 percent was more than i expected was mm. it about what you expected so it is more than I expected. It, I also thought it was going to be more like like 15%, but 25 a quarter is quite a bit to me. Yeah, it's not doesn't feel great, does it? No. No. It's uh you know, and especially going into an election year and being like, "Oh, we once again underestimated the number of people who are unhappy with the current order." I mean, right. like not that we're really happy with the current order either. I guess this also does include churches who disaffiliated because they wanted to be more progressive. I assume that it's a small, small amount given where most of the disaffili- disaffiliations came from, but there it's some of them. Yeah. I was really surprised to see uh, both North Carolina annual conferences having more than 30% disaffiliating. Um, and I, I, listeners, we recorded a previous version of this where I talked a lot about my feelings about that. I am sad and upset and feel betrayed and um, really want to go on a big rant about like the person I was raised to be. <laughs> but we don't need that right now. It's a big loss for the Southeastern jurisdiction. I mean, that's, and that's, it was a big jurisdiction for us. And I, as somebody from the Southeastern jurisdiction, I feel like I, on one hand, I'm just kind of pissed because like now Ian is super right. Uh, Cause he was like, I never want to be presided over by a Southeastern jurisdiction Bishop. Like I am out. I'm going to stay in the NEJ. And I was like, all you people in the NEJ with your like liberal, this and that, like we're real people in the SEJ too. And we are, and there are good people and all this kind of stuff. But boy, did we blow it on this one. <laughs> Yeah, I feel you. <laughs> I feel you. <laughs> I think that it's a shame to see how the how it's a shame to see the jurisdictions functioning the exact way they were designed. Yes. You know, because listeners, the jurisdictions exist 
because of slavery, like like the jurisdictions right. exist because of racism and, and all of this. This is a way to a compromise that we made when we merged when we remerged with the Methodist Episcopal Church South to to say, hey, don't worry, we would never let an anti-racist bishop show up in in one of your annual conferences. Don't right. worry about it. And they're like, whoo, that's a relief, you know, <laughs> like, 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 it's very, we have to make compromises. I am often okay with compromises, uh, especially if I've been given responsibility over an organization, we just have to do that sometimes. But this is a, a very, uh, a, a good example of what happens when compromise is the norm of what we do. Yes. Rather, rather than something that maybe we just have to do if there's no way to convince somebody or, you know, it's just we there's too much at stake. We just have to make a compromise. You know what I mean? Like like if if we don't reserve compromises for the extreme, but instead sort of see a virtue in compromise um, at all times, this is uh, this is what we reap. Yeah you know agreed i saw a, a post on facebook today that said conflict avoided is conflict multiplied mm -hmm. and i think that is very true here that any of the short-term compromises we have made are just going to perpetuate long-term dysfunction and we can talk more about solutions later but yeah i the compromise of creating jurisdictions just furthered just perpetuated the system by which jurisdictions were were needed they are absolutely functioning as designed um which is you know just so great for the people in those jurisdictions who maybe want to be more holy and maybe want to care for more people um it, it is an extra barrier that people have to get through mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so great the next thing in the article is the sizes of churches that left and the sizes of disaffiliating churches and actually it's remarkably what's the word i want to say it's uh it's pretty tame like yeah. it's pretty much the same you know what i mean like it's it's not too it's not um it doesn't really reveal anything um like special in my opinion yeah it wasn't like all of the mega churches are leaving or all of the small churches are leaving or all of the middle of the road churches are leaving it was evenly distributed kind of yeah. across uh, average worship attendance, which I think that people were afraid, especially in the Southeastern jurisdiction, that you were going to have all these big mega churches go because bigger churches tend to be more conservative churches. And we just didn't see that spike. Mm -hmm. So, that you know, that's nice. It's nice to know that, like, it hit the same way across the board. It is um, surprising to me that uh 30 percent 35 percent of united methodist churches worship 25 or fewer every sunday mm -hmm. but i on, on the one hand that makes sense but also your largest percentage of churches like it's all i mean it's spread across but your largest percentage of churches a third of your denomination has less than 25 people in worship on sunday what does that what does that say? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my two churches are part of that. Um, sure. So, you know, it's damning. It's not great. <laughs> it's not great. Not that we're going for size here, right? Like that's not necessarily an indicator of health either. Right. 
But but yeah, in a lot of ways, this article is funny because um, behind this article is the much perhaps the much more existential problem of the church, which is is that this this is of course all of them are not working. Right. Like, like, like every denomination is not working in an important way and will continue to not work unless, you know, churches decide to become a little bolder, you know, but maybe the Southern Baptist Convention's master plan of uh, theocracy in order to uh, get more people in church on Sunday will uh, work. Maybe it'll finally work. Maybe maybe 2024 will be the year. You never know. Yeah, you never know. It's not, I mean, church attendance rose dramatically when Trump got a, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> I was about to be like, I know that statistic. Yeah, no. That's actually the opposite is true. <laughs> yeah. Actually, okay. people, more evangelical, people who identify as evangelicals don't go to church than go to church. Funny. Interesting. Funny how that happened. Who knows? Um, speaking of evangelicals, disaffiliating churches are disproportionately white. The United Methodist Church had a 90-10 split, basically, between majority white and majority not white. And uh, in the disaffiliations, 97% of disaffiliating churches were majority white. Are we surprised? Uh, I mean, I'm not surprised. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not at all surprised. Um, I think, uh, yeah, oh yeah. I mean, like this is lots of what I would consider uh, kind of lazy progressive discourse will on Twitter, which by definition has to be lazy. It's Twitter. That's what we do. That's what we do. We don't have time to write a book, you know, like I get it. We'll, we'll tell you that whiteness infects everything and whiteness and homophobia all sort of go together and that's you know true i don't think anybody can i don't think anybody who is making that claim in that kind of passing way is prepared to explain how it goes together sure right and so that that doesn't really help us with analysis very much but but yeah i mean like even if you take homophobia out of it if there's one thing white people like to hear it's that they're the master race Right. But they're the most correct. That yeah. They're the best, you know? So like, even if it had nothing to do with gay people, like I'm not shocked at all that white congregations are susceptible to the, don't you want to be in the best place? That's the global Methodist church, baby. And everybody goes, are you telling me that there's a better church than the United Methodist one? That's where we want to go. And like, <laughs> you know, like, like it's not that hard, you know, any, everybody's susceptible to that. At least you are white, you know, everybody probably is, but white people uh, have a degenerative brain disease that makes it easier for them to be susceptible to that. I mean, like I get the joke. I, it's it's funny to me that you're like, let me reach for a biological metaphor to describe what's happening when we can just say whiteness. Like it's, that's why. I, mean, I mean, is, is whiteness something that hangs in the ether that isn't connected at all to my white skin? No. Okay, but also, well, it's not a measurable defect in the brain. It it isn't. <laughs> okay. Correct. I, I, I want to start. I want to start a, a new white phrenology department oh at UVA, where we where we look for the bumps on the skull to indicate uh, whiteness, so that I can prove once and for all that white people are not the master race. 
I think by what you just said, you have proven my point. We're moving on. (laughs) I do want to circle back to this thing about the separation by race, but I want to come back to it when we talk about women. Okay. So disaffiliating churches were less likely to have an elder as a pastor. And I think that makes... 100% 100% sense that there's mm-hmm. more local pastors and lay supply. Uh, the retired pastors, I think, is kind of surprising. Licensed local pastors, lay pastors, and retired pastors were more likely to disaffiliate, and elders were more likely to get their churches to stay. Actually, I think that we can talk about this maybe all together. Let me talk about this with the next statistic, which is that um, of the churches that disaffiliated, 81% were led by a man and 19% were led by a woman. Compared to in the denomination overall, 29% of churches are led by a woman and 71% are led by men. So to me, what I see in this is that People who have a stake in the protections of the denomination are more likely to keep people in the denomination, right? Elders have their retirement. They are like by definition bought into the institution. Minority lead pastors are more bought into the institution because it has protections for them. And uh, in in the very small way that it does, but like you look at uh, the percentage of churches with a majority of Asian attenders and that's 1.2% of the UMC and only 0.4% of disaffiliations. That and I imagine those are largely Korean immigrant communities, though I don't know for sure. But like, of course, they want to stay with the denomination. That's part of their story. It's core to who they are. They're very like closely connected with it. And then the same with women. I mean, the Global Methodist Church is not going to ordain women for very long if they are going to at all. And Mm -hmm. so like, of course, women are going to want to stay. I mean, I think that's true. Uh, with yeah with elders as well so i think with like those three statistics in a row we see the people who are protected by the denomination protect the denomination yeah yeah i think that's exactly right i think that's exactly right and of course like there's people who don't fit into that right and like we can i mean we've had several guests of color on the show especially black guests who will be willing to say just very straightforwardly that like of course the black church has problems with homophobia like of course that is something to work on sure but also like they're not the ones who are rushing out the door you know mm-hmm. they're they're not even rushing in the door <laughs> well listen yeah but, but i don't blame them for that so I, well, and that's the thing, and we can come back to that in a second, but um, yeah, it's not like we're creating an environment that anybody wants to be in yet. Um, and uh, the last piece of data that's in this article are conferences with 30% or more church disaffiliations. The Northwest Texas Conference is the one with the most at 81%, which is just brutal. But all the other names on here are names that you would expect. I don't think that... Anything in that percentage really surprised me other than I did not pay enough attention to Northwest Texas. Well, I was going to say that's uh, the 81% of Northwest Texas indicates that we're talking about like the axis of evil here. Like like who the heck is in Northwest Texas? Is that where propaganda is made? Like, (laughs) like, Like, holy shit. Like that's that's an absolutely insane amount of ch- of churches and people 
who who um in in an entire annual conference who were just like no we really think that gay people need to get the fuck out of texas i'm like why are you all united methodists <laughs> how did this happen I guess circuit riders, I guess. Florida also had 34% disaffiliations, so. Yeah, but, like, there is a difference between 34 and 81. 81. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, 30, 34 is not good. It's shameful and bad. Because it's, it's, and it's over the entire average of people, of, of congregations who have left, you know, in general, which, which is, which is itself shameful and bad. But if 81% of United Methodist churches disaffiliate over this issue in any other conference or context, people should be losing their minds. Like people should be like, like, I'm a little surprised that like bishops haven't resigned. Yeah. And like, truly, I don't know of the bishops who have left other than, you know, like Mark Webb, retired bishop. But um, Mm -hmm. I, I really know nothing about the South Central jurisdiction. Yeah, I would hope that. I mean, I don't either at all. But man, I would hope I would hope that somebody, some bishop somewhere who has some responsibility for this annual conference is um, crying somewhere. Right. Unless they were like leading the charge, right? Yeah, I mean, sure. It's possible that every single bishop in and district superintendent, not just in that conference, but in that jurisdiction, are just like everything is going according to plan and we have no problems with this. But something tells me that that's not true. Right. Like that can't be it. Right. Like somebody somewhere, mostly because the only way you become you have some of this power is by being an institutionalist is by, is by saying, yeah, I might be more conservative than other people. And yeah, I might have more problems with the system than other people, but because of that, but I'm would like to be made Bishop a a job in which most of it is maintaining the process as it is. Right. Right. It's keeping the stasis. Yeah. Yeah. And so surely there's somebody, some, some centrist shill Bishop, or district superintendent hopefully is sitting in their house weeping because they are such a failure that like it's it's almost it's almost absurd uh, to be able to see it. Eighty one percent is um, a, alone might mean that we need to pull all United Methodist people from Texas. Like we need to relocate them. <laughs> yeah, they got to be somewhere else. Yeah. I mean, it's Northwest Texas is 81%. Texas is 50% and Central Texas is 44%. So, they, I mean, they're all, it's, it's all a chunk of them. It's just wild. We, one of our, one of our biggest and, and strongest, um, both schools at like, like regular universities and theological seminaries is in Dallas. Like I would have gone to SMU, uh, I would have applied to Southern Methodist University's PhD program if I didn't get into UVA. Right, like, like they are not conservative there, and and I have to believe that just about every ordained elder in Texas probably at least applied to Perkins at SMU. Right. So, like, what happened? <laughs> 
you, I almost, I'm going to be real with you. This is kind of silly, but I'm kind of half serious. I almost want to send like a team to investigate. Like, like what the fuck took place? The council of bishops needs to like send people to Perkins and send people to these former United Methodist churches and be like, so like what was going on? You know, <laughs> like, with yeah. all of this? like it's wild. I mean, and here we only have like the raw numbers, right? I mean, we can, we can speculate all day long and we have, and we will, but at the same time, like we don't have, we don't have those narratives yet. We have no. anecdotal evidence. We have like what we've observed, but we don't have um, like an in-depth study of like, this is who made this decision. This is who pushed, you know, this is how this happened. Yeah. I So so thinking about this, we have 75% of United Methodist churches in the United States still left in the denomination. And I, as we reflected on before, the strategy for this was really like, if they want to go, let them go. And thinking about jurisdictions, you know, and that compromise of like, oh, well, to keep together, we will do this thing that is just going to like continue to bite us in the ass, right? And thinking about like the future that we hope for, I'm kind of torn because I don't see the remaining United Methodist churches really like imagining what comes next. I think that a lot of people are having similar emotions to us, which is like despair, frustration, anger, a feeling of being like duped almost. Mm -hmm. What like what would it take for the UMC to um move forward from this better and healthier and stronger like what actions do we need to take now as a denomination knowing that like 25 percent of our churches just up and left and um i think that gives us maybe more freedom but but yeah what would it take for us to be better after this hmm. um i think uh, a name change what if we called ourselves the Mega United Methodist Church? I'll get people um, in the door. <laughs> yeah, I think it'll get people in the door. Or we can change our name to the Global Methodist Church, but have an extra B in there just to confuse people. The Global. <laughs> the Global, or, or several L's, Global uh, Ooh, nice, Methodist nice. Church. Um, that's an option. Um, I, I actually think the... I think I think drastic change needs to take place. Yeah, I agree. I think uh, I think drastic change. I don't mean like revolutionary change because, in general, I think when people are calling for that, they they do not know what they're asking. They do not understand what they're saying. Right? Like revolutionary change means a revolution. It means it means it's time. We we will. It doesn't matter that it's not nice to go up on a uh, on on the annual conference floor and demand that a bishop resigns right now, and that we're not leaving until a bishop resigns right now, and then convince everybody to stand there and wait for the bishop to forego their credentials and become a night manager at Wegmans, right? Like, like, like we're not going to do that. I don't think revolution is anything that anybody's going to do. But uh, at least not in the United Methodist Church, because it's just not going to happen. By drastic change, I at least mean a completely different way of thinking about a, a different a different class of leadership, right? Like 
if the people who've been traditionally leading our annual conferences can only produce this in in a time of crisis, right? Then the answer is, oh, well, I think at, at the very least, at the very least, if we're not ready to change our structures and our polity totally yet, we have to at least have better people in leadership positions working within that polity, right? Like I I can only speak for my annual conference, but the the sort of the sort of incredible amount of incompetence at the annual at my annual conference level makes um, questions about like is this structure working an impossible to answer question because like is the structure working well right now it's not working but there's no way we can tell if it's not working because it's poorly designed or if it's not working because the six people who run it are 75 and don't really have any of these skills anyway when they were younger. Right. Right. Like, or the person who's so camping ministry is a great example, right? Like the, at, at my, I'm love camping ministry at my conference. Camping ministry has consistently been maybe the only thing that is worth praising that we're doing at this at my annual conference. And, you know, the, the people who run it, have traditionally, like the director of camping ministry is for as long as I can remember, has traditionally been a position given to a fully ordained elder who um, we finally cannot argue with the negative evaluations, right? Right. Like, like the fully ordained elder who's been a pastor for 25 years and, and at the 25 year mark, we're looking at their, his, it's always a he, his evaluations. And we're saying, man, this guy hasn't been effective in, in, in a congregation ever. Not one time. But he's fully ordained. Well, I guess we'll make him executive assistant to the bishop. Well, I guess we'll have him oversee the budget this year. Well, I mean, is there a youth position? Yeah, you're going to run conference youth, pal. Have a good time. You know, like, like that's how it works at my conference. With that in mind, there's no way we can tell if any of our systems are equipped enough to handle anything. And so at the very least, we need to be like, we need to intentionally, when I say people need to resign, I mean it. Mm. Like, I really mean it. Like, I'm like, no, people need to resign and we need new people. And, And after they resign and we get new people and four years go by, we get to another general conference and nothing is better then maybe we need to radically rehaul our our systems. But at least in my annual conference, there's no way to tell, once again, if the system is effective or not. Because, because we just don't have good people doing stuff. It's all nepotism or it's all a good old boys club or it's all just, you know, just people kind of kind of vibing, kind of chilling, kind of collecting their money and having a good time, right? So I think at the very least, people need to resign. And I'm uh, once again, Joe, and I'll stop saying I am dead serious about that. Right. I'm, when I when I say why hasn't people why aren't the people who are left at the North Texas Annual Conference why haven't they resigned? Maybe they have, but I certainly haven't read anything about it. Not because I'm just a big old meanie who 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 hates people, but because it's their fucking fault. Yeah. 
<laughs> it's their fault. They're the leaders. And I'm not asking them to resign because they made a mistake. I'm asking them to resign because they failed, you know, at the, at the, at the only important level that matters. They failed and now new leadership has to try. And that's what I think. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's something that we, I, I don't think that's something that's ever going to get said. I, all I ever hear from people are like bishops, we know that you tried <laughs> and you, we know that you had a lot going on and we have a lot of compassion for you. And I, um, I, I, there's a time to have compassion for people. And then there's a time to recognize that people did not do what they needed to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, yeah, I the goal again the goal didn't seem to be let's keep as many people as we can keep the goal seemed to be let's find a way to let people leave and I and I just think that I don't know we've had so many we've had so many hard conversations over homosexuality but we didn't we never had the conversation that said actually this isn't about this isn't about homosexuality this Mm -hmm. isn't even really about hermeneutics which was the thing that people tended to shift toward this is Mm -hmm. really about a group of separatists within the umc who wanted to have the best terms for leaving and and we were like how about we make it even easier for you to do it you know Mm-hmm. I and and I'm not in the room. I'm not the one making those decisions. I am not the neither of us are the ones who are doing the work around this, right? We're just two people with podcasts. But it it is incredibly frustrating and incredibly disheartening and um you know, so I this is a personal story, it connects I promise. Um okay. At Wesley on like orientation day, they have you like renew your baptism and you go up and you like, I don't know, dip your hands in a font and get a fancy shell. Mm-hmm. And it's like you like dedicating yourself to this like journey of ordination or whatever you're going to do, this journey of ministry and learning that you're on. And I did not want to go up to the font. I really fought with myself and I was like nobody's gonna know if I don't go and I could just like sit back here and watch all this happen and not engage because I had a lot of I had a lot of questions still I had a lot of like I was really like troubled in my heart to use uh, language that I grew up learning and um eventually I like decided and I don't I, I let go of my hesitancy and was like you know what like let's just do it um, but I'm going to do what I want to do with the baptismal font. Like I, I could not let it be this kind of like solemn taking on of duty, right? Like that's not, that's not what the font is to me. And so like, I got up there and like splashed around in the water and like enjoyed myself, you know, like I connected with water. I connected with like the joy that can come from like, choosing again to live the Christian life and choosing again to be in relationship with God and choosing again to love others better than I have loved them before. Like sometimes there is a true joyful freedom to that. Mm -hmm. And so I was telling the story to my uh, church's staff parish relation committee, my home church, uh, mm-hmm. A church that somehow did not disaffiliate despite people's efforts uh, and a church that is 
falling apart right now. Um, and I, the, everybody on the SPRC just blinked at me. And I like, I was like, I just told a pretty compelling story with a lot of like fun imagery. That was a true, like true spiritual moment for me. So I don't know why you're just blinking at me. Um, and then finally somebody was like, well, can you tell us like why you splashed in the font? And I'm like, I almost wanted to pull a like, well, if I have to explain it, then you don't get it, you know? Mm -hmm. (laughs) But I also realized that like, this is the church that taught me that I have to be prim and proper in every way. This is the church that taught me to be afraid of my body and afraid of myself. This is the church that taught me that being gay is a sin and that we have to read the Bible, if not literally very close to literally. This is the church that taught me to like watch my every action everywhere I was to make sure that I was representing Christ well in every single thing that I did. And representing Christ well meant being polite and um, being like the highest standards of of goodness that they could abide by. Um, It meant like not kissing anybody until you were married to them, right? Like they, they set all of these ideals before me and told me, we will love you if you do these things. And I don't want to like say that that was what everybody was thinking, because I think they said unconditional love a lot. But you also watched what they did. And boy, it was really hard for them to love some people who weren't practically perfect in every way. And Mm -hmm. so when I, as a full ass grown adult, am sitting in front of them and say, no, I like joyfully claimed my journey and I did it by splashing. They're like, but what, but why splash though? That doesn't seem like something you need to do. Right. Like that seems a little out of order. And, and I've just realized recently that like, if I were to say that to the church within a church people, they would have been like, great. Like, I'm so glad that you were yourself in that moment. I'm so glad you brought yourself. I'm so glad that you had this like confirming moment for you where you made a choice for yourself, you Mm -hmm. know, like, and I'm glad that you decided to do something new with your faith that brought it to life for you. But meanwhile, my home church could not understand what was happening. And I think that is indicative of a lot of what's going on in the United Methodist Church, that um, we had a heyday. And in that heyday, people were a proper and bright and polite and powerful. And um, despite the fact that we are splitting over a disagreement, uh, at least we can both be proper about it, you know, but like, that's not what's required for life right now. What's required for like abundant life right now is for us to step outside of what we've been doing, to stop listening to the people who have kept us trapped in cycles that have done nothing for us and to like find somewhere where life is because life is not in those churches who have disaffiliated, right? Life Mm -hmm. is not in the people who furthered this conflict for their own personal power. That is not where like the spirit of God is. It's somewhere else. And I think we need to be radically seeking it. I agree. I Let me say one thing in response to exactly what you said, and it's going to be the closest I have sound to like weird, magic, new agey bullcrap. So um, uh, hey, man, deep calls unto deep. I don't I don't think I don't think that anybody can love queer people until they have become queer themselves. And I, I don't. Right. 
and I don't, and, and if I can put it in more churchy language, you can't, this is about sanctification. If you are described, if somebody describes a holy experience or experience where they themselves find themselves regenerated, I'm trying to use as much theological language as I can, because I think it's good language for this, like regeneration, sanctification, holiness. These are, these are things that you know, God's grace is doing and that people can experience and have become a part of their reality. And if somebody is describing a moment of regeneration, if somebody is describing an event of holiness in their lives to people who have not been gripped by the event, I don't think they know how, not only do they not know how to respond, they're not even sure how to love you. Right. They're not sure how to do any of that. Right. Like, and this is, um, I, I say this to say, I think your description of where many United Methodist churches are at is exactly right. You know, this is a a a, a crisis of language and experience and and, a, and formation, sort of all the way down. If an SPRC of your home church can't comprehend why you would behave in this way, um, even though this is a way you didn't describe anything lewd or were weird. Right. <laughs> you just described. You just described this moment of joy. It'd be the same. I think it'd be the same thing as if you went there and instead of splashing, you found yourself weeping. You found yourself yeah. overcome with sorrow, or or you know, or or stuff like that. I think they still wouldn't understand, right? Like it's just not. It's just not in their experience. It's not in their mentality. It's not that they can't be. It's not that. It's not that they're a lost cause or people are lost causes in this way. But I think that, uh, I just think that's true. I think that uh, the, until we are alike, Mm. you know, not the same, but alike, not, not to smooth away our otherness or our differences, but alike until that happens. Man, like, like, I think you're always going to talk, you're just going to talk nonsense to people, right? Like people are just going to be like, man, I don't understand any of this. What is the big deal with, with, you know, gay people being in churches? Why do they want to be? Why can't they just go find their own churches? I have people say that to me sometimes, but why do gay people want to be here? I'm like, well, because they're United Methodists. Yeah, but why do they want to be? To be gay is to not be United Methodist. And that is true. Descriptively, that is true. Yeah. Right? Like, there's really no other way around it. You know, descriptively, that is true. To be gay is to not be United Methodist. And I think that for a lot of United Methodists, that's correct. And your description of your experience is just a little too gay. Yeah, it is is a little too gay. And and the sad thing, Joe, is um, this is why uh, queer theology. A lot of queer theology is incredibly boring. I just want everybody to know that. <laughs> well, because they getting, have to prove something, right? They, they have, have to prove, prove something. Academically rigorous, rigorous. You're, yeah, you're right. Like it's not. Uh, this isn't their fault. I'm just trying to 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 be honest. To prepare but people. Like, to, to prepare people. But like good queerness, good queer theology should always be bleeding into uh, what Christians, at least what Methodists or Wesleyans, have always said about Christian perfection and holiness and sanctification. You know, it's, it's, it's about being alive with the life of God. 
yeah. you know, and 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 seeing that in that way. Like I personally have no interest in taking, say, like sexual love or sexuality and putting it in the Godhead. I really have no interest in that. I happen to think that Jesus was asexual. I and and I'm perfectly fine with saying something like, yeah, like the the creaturely experience of sex is a creaturely experience, one that not every creature has, and one that is perfectly good and fine, but is probably not anything that we need to uh, uh, make divine in an important way. But man, the creaturely experience of joy, right? The creaturely experience of 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 finding your yourself resonating with the deeps of the universe, right? The creaturely experience of realizing that I am indeed dwelling in my God right now. That's something that um, is, is still deeply queer because the whole sort of the, that which is not queer is mechanical. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like, I don't know. And I, I try not to spend a whole lot of time talking about like what is queer and what isn't queer because it's me. You know, I don't have any real authority on that. And I have encountered people, you know, both at seminary and in other places who who are queer and do queer theology. And they say, no, it's only about sex. Sure. And that and that you are trying to say it's something else is a sign that you are not queer, that you do not get it. And that that you are you are talking nonsense. The Trinity is a polyamorous relationship, and the quicker you understand that, the more uh, tr- you know, the the better things will be. Uh, I don't know what to make of that, but like, but I get it, right? And so, yeah, your story sounds like that to me. You know, I think that this is a, a good example, and your analysis is good. Thanks. I also think that like. I, obviously, your analysis is also good. Your reflections are good. I support us. I think we did good work. Yeah, we're doing okay. We were trying. Well, you want to sign us off? <laughs> yeah, I can sign us off. Friends, thanks for listening. This has been an episode of What the Hell is a Pastor? We are Ethan and Joe, and we will see you next time. What the Hell is a Pastor is hosted by Ethan Shearer and Joe Schoenwolf and produced by Joe Schoenwolf. Our theme song is written by Joe Schoenwolf, performed by Ian Oriola and Paul Oriola, and produced by Paul Oriola. Rate, review, and subscribe to us in the podcasting app of your choice. Find us across the social internet at WTHIAP. And visit us at WTHIAP.com to get connected to our Patreon merch, playlists, and more. A special thanks to our Patreon subscribers, Nick, Justin, Matt, Teddy, Paul, Grace, Sam, Jory, Tara, Rachel, Abby, Peter, Reverends Langenstein, Annalise, Ian, and me. Your money makes this show happen. Yes, it does. (laughs) Thanks for listening, everybody. And remember, don't be a dick. Just don't do it. Don't do it. Don't, Don't be a dick.